meekness changes the world. How meekness changes the world. We're going to see this in chapters 13 and 14. I wonder for you and I, I mean, I don't know about what you've been thinking about recently, but one of the things I've been thinking about is how is my faith going to help me to handle the latest tests to our faith, to our lives? I'm sure you're feeling some of the same things, whether it's the homeschooling issues or whether it's the tragedy for Stefan with his mother passing away and all the other things that we're facing at the moment. How is our faith? The biggest question of all is how is our faith going to help us to handle the latest tests that we're facing? And so we see in chapter 13 that Abraham, having had a test, as John mentioned, in Egypt and, and effectively failing that test, then has another test with the dispute with Lot. And in chapter 14, let me just mention what goes on in chapter 14 before we go on. What we find at the beginning of chapter 14 after all this is that there are lots of wars going on and there's a list of kings, um, which I'm not going to read all of them because I don't think I'm going to pronounce them quite right. <clears throat> but uh, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Alassa, and many other kings. There are various alliances of kings that do battle with each other. And in the course of these battles, uh, there's a lot of um, a lot of fighting going on. And um, the Sod kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fall into some tar pits. And then in verse 12, the significant thing for us in the story here is that they also carried off Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his possessions. They captured him and took him off. Uh, since he was living in Sodom. He's gone from living near Sodom to living in Sodom, and now he's been captured and taken away by these enemies. Um, someone escapes and tells Abraham what's gone on, and it says that he gathered together his uh, 318 trained men from his household, verse, that's verse 14, and he goes in pursuit as far as Dan. He divides up his men to attack them. He routs them. This is the victorious army. He routs them pursuing them north of Damascus. He recovers all the goods, brings them back, brings back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. So he rescues Lot, rescues all his possessions, all the other people taken with him. Abraham does all this. And then he meets the king of Sodom and he meets the mysterious character of Melchizedek. We could talk a lot about that, but we haven't got time today. But Melchizedek, king of Salem, the first person called a priest in the Bible, meets him and blesses him, brings him bread and uh, and wine. And Abraham gives him a tenth. And then the king of Sodom says, give me the people, you can keep everything else. But he says to the king of Sodom, uh, Abraham, Abraham, that uh, no, I've made a vow. I'm not going to take anything. I'm not going to beholden, be beholden to you. And so uh, that's, that's it. So we see Abraham tested a number of times here, first by the conflict with Lot, and secondly, by the, the, the issue of Lot's capture and the battles and the wars around him that's what's going on it seems to me i don't know about, i don't like this but it seems to me that in life you get through one challenge and then there's another one you get through one test and then there's another one there's the challenge we had back in march last year of the beginnings of the lockdown and the challenges with the virus and then it was eased and then it came back more more of a lockdown we've got the second uh, all these different variants coming now and we're having a more severe lockdown now it's penny's mother's birthday today and we're not going to be able to see her it's it, the, the key these things keep coming and so it, one of the things about living a faithful and well in a sense joy-filled christian life is learning how to prepare yourself to handle the challenges that come by faith and to me a key component of that is learning how to be meek and in these two chapters we see Abraham 
exemplifying a godly meekness that I think is very appropriate and it's how his faith manifested itself in his life. Abraham's world was a tough place. He's just had a famine and now he's having a conflict with his family and then he's involved in wars. I don't know about you, but I think there might be three of the worst things you could you could have going on in your life. Famine, where you may starve to death. Conflict with family, which causes division, which is always traumatic. And then war. Uh, this this is a tough time for Abraham. And yet, and yet he comes through this set of tests much better than he did the uh, previous test in Egypt. And what is the key thing about his faith that seems to have changed? seems to me it's it's the element of meekness. Now, most of us will remember that a year ago we had a teaching day on the Beatitudes and we preached through parts of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, one of the Beatitudes is Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Isn't Abraham the most brilliant example of this? That in a sense, he inherited the earth. In a sense, he did, because, I mean, he's the chap who's not only promised uh, descendants like the sand and the stars, but also now in chapter 13, like the dust of the earth. And we are part of that inheritance today. So he has inherited the earth, you could say, but it's blessed are the meek. Now, before we go on, we should talk about what meekness actually is, because there are different views on this. But firstly, uh, one quote I read, meekness is a controlled desire to see the other's interests advance ahead of your own. That's what it is. <clears throat> a controlled desire to see the other's interests advance ahead of your own. Another definition, the meek are those who don't throw their weight about. Those who don't throw their weight about. Isn't that true? There are those who throw their weight about, but a meek person is one who doesn't need to do that, doesn't feel any compulsion to do that. Or as Jordan B. Peterson put it, I think I'm paraphrasing here, and I don't know if it's original with him or he's quoting somebody else, but he said something like, the meek are those who know how to use a sword, but keep it sheathed. I've got a sword. Some of you have seen this sword before. This is a, a, a replica samurai sword that I was given. I went, I was invited to go and preach and teach in Tokyo in Japan a few years ago. And the gift they gave me afterwards was this sword. Um, as you can see, I keep it sheathed, but I can unsheathe it. And there is the magnificent thing. How on earth I got this through hand luggage, I'll never know, but that's a story for another time, but I did. And I brought it back with me and it is astonishing. I don't know how to use it. You'll be glad to know, perhaps. And so I'm not skilled at using it, but I, I do keep it sheathed. And so the meek, the meek are like, well, maybe like samurai warriors who would actually know how to use this sword properly, but they keep it sheathed. There's a sense of strength and restraint in those who are meek. And I think this is what we see with Abraham. Somebody whose faith is used or expressed by strength and restraint here. So let's talk about three things today that I see in these passages, and you can let me know what you think. Firstly, what does meekness do? Meekness takes us back to God when we've made mistakes. Meekness takes us back to God. He's made mistakes in Egypt. We talked about that last week. John referred to it. He's been humbled there. How does he come back to the promised land? He comes back not to sulk, not to... Uh, not to blame other people, not to be sorry for himself. He goes back to where he first began. He goes back to the beginning, where he had been earlier, 
where he built his first altar. And there, what does he do? He called on the name of the Lord. He went back to a place where he'd connected with God before to reconnect. It's interesting that this time God does not speak. Remember in chapter 12? In chapter 12, God spoke. Here, it's only Abraham speaking, as far as we can tell. God does not speak. I wonder why. I think the clue is in what happens next. But I think Abraham's going back there, hoping to reconnect. And at that point, we don't see God speaking to him. It seems to be, perhaps, maybe it's a dry time. Have you ever had a spiritually dry time? Like a time when you're praying and you're trying to live like a Christian, but you just don't feel that there's something coming back. You don't feel spiritually energized. I've had times like that. I dare say you have too. Maybe you're having a dry time like that now. My, my, what I'd like to urge us to consider is that dry times are not wasted. Even though Abraham is not, there's no response from God here that we can tell of. It doesn't stop him worshiping, calling on the name of the Lord and staying connected to God. And it seems to me that in this um, incident of him deciding to worship, that prepares him for what happens next with Lot and helps him to handle that crisis better than he handled his, handled his previous crisis. The dry times are not wasted. They're often the times of preparation. Um, I had a dry time a number of years ago, I remember particularly, and what I did was um, I, uh, I had an all-night prayer. I just thought I've, I need to have an all-night prayer, so I did. And in my all-night prayer, uh, one of the main things I did there was to get in my car and drive to the place where I was baptized into Christ many years earlier. There's a church building in uh, Bermondsey in South London. And I drove down there, and of course it was during the night, so the church was shut. But I, I stood outside and prayed there because it reminded me, that's where I was baptized into Christ in um, November 1984. I, it re reminded me of all the things God had done to bring me to that point. It refreshed me to remember God has always been involved in my life. So praying there. So maybe, you know, when you're having a, you've made some mistakes, perhaps you feel some sense of guilt or or you, you've been in sin in some way. Perhaps you have some sense of regret and it's a bit overwhelming as it might have been for Abraham after what happened in Egypt. Maybe you need to go back to the old familiar. Perhaps it would help us to reconnect with God, to do something we've done before that's been particularly helpful. Is it praying there with a lighted candle in a dark room? Is it reading favorite psalms? Is it perhaps singing some favorite hymns? I was doing that this morning. Um, Praise my soul, the King of heaven. I was singing uh, in the woods this morning. It's one of the ones that helps me uh, to connect with the majesty of God. Um, what is it for you that might help you reconnect with God? Remember, not no matter what sin or guilt or regret you're carrying, there's always a warm welcome for you with God. God is waiting with a warm welcome. Just think about the prodigal and the father welcoming the prodigal back. So how do we know we're living our faith out in a, in a way that's meek? One of the ways we know is by being consistent in our devotion to God. Praying when we're dry, reading the Bible when we're dry, worshiping when it's a bit dry. We go to God even when he doesn't speak to us. We get strengthened by God through that, whether we notice it or not. And we get equipped by God, whether we notice it or not, for these next tests. It looks to me that this sort of what you might call a quiet time prepared Abraham for the next challenge. So that's the first thing. Meekness takes us back to God and allows us to be strengthened. And then what we find next is in this situation with Lot, Meekness helps us to act like God with, I would say, gentleness. He's gentle with Lot here. 
It's interesting that as far as we know, this is the final conversation they ever had. I mean, we don't know whether there was a conversation after the rescue or not, but this is the last one recorded. Isn't it rather sad that the last recorded conversation with Abraham and Lot is their, is their parting of ways? A lot is, um, there's, an, there's a good problem. There's all this, this uh, bounty, but there's quarreling and Abraham gives Lot the choice. He says, you can go wherever you like. I, I'm going to let you choose. It's um, a sign of Abraham's strength that he's able to do this. Abraham would have had the right to dictate. He was the uh, uncle. Uh, Lot was the nephew. He was the older man in that culture. They, they get to make the decisions. Uh, Lot's blessings are only only because of Abraham anyway. Um, so there, there Abraham would have that right, but he doesn't use it. Lot seeks the spirit, seeks the material over the spiritual. He ends up living by sight, not by faith. Differently to Abraham, who says, if you want the best land, you can have the best land. This is not the best land. It might even be rubbish land, but rubbish land is enough for me. He's content. Abraham has found, at least at this point in his life, the capacity to be content with whatever God gives him. He's not sensing that need to grab for himself or self-preservation anymore. So, And Lot then moves east, which of course biblically is a very significant symbolic thing to move east. When Adam and Eve and Cain leave the garden and move, they go they go eastward. Uh, the people that built the town of uh, built Babel uh, went eastward. East is a, a, a symbol of moving further away from that closeness to God, and that is what Lot is doing here by moving east. Grace and meekness go together. The last time Abraham tried to control his fate, this time he gives up control. He does not dominate the decision making. He's content and he's seeking the benefit of the undeserving. Lot, Lot does not deserve his grace and his mercy here. But Abraham has that security in God where he's able, he's able to seek the benefit of the undeserving. I would suggest it reminds us of Jesus himself, right? And uh, Paul talks about Jesus in Philippians 2, uh, verse 3 to verse 7, where he's talking about Jesus. He says, and talking about how we can imitate Jesus, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, looking not only to your, looking not, uh, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So meekness, one of the aspects of meekness is that it's demonstrated by generosity. A generosity that's inspired by God's generosity to others. I don't know about you, but I find this. So when people are generous to me, I think, yeah, I, I'd like, I like being generous. It's nice to be the recipient of generosity, but it inspires me to be more generous to others. And this is one of the wonderful things about having this connection with God is we're reminded of his generosity to us and it inspires us to be generous to other people. God in his generosity gave us his son to die. That's why, that's why we live the Christian life. It's why we love those that are hard to love. It's why we love people who don't deserve our love, at least in a humanistic sense. We're generous even though people don't deserve it. The challenge that I face, and maybe you do too, is that I'm often tempted into self-preservation. 
and to be generous by nature and by habit is something a bit of a challenge and i don't i would hesitate to say about myself that i'm generous by nature i can be generous i do enjoy being generous but i'm not sure it's my nature to be generous i hope as i've got a bit older as a christian i'm becoming a little more generous but it's not something that's innate in me and so i need god's inspiration to live a generous life and i think some of us here in this uh in the watford congregation i think you inspire me and uh, we inspire inspire one another by the, the generosity uh, many of us are tremendously generous financially or generous with our hospitality generous with our time generous with using our gifts so i think it's a wonderful thing and all of us might want to think about how can i be truly generous with what god has given me to bless other people whether in the church or, or beyond how might i grow in generosity and of course one word of caution here <laughs> the answer to making uh, to becoming more generous is not to, to make ourselves be generous like right 10-step program to be generous i'm going to a do this and b do that and c do that we can't just make ourselves be generous we're not looking here for if you like a, some kind of moral or ethical conformity we're looking for a change of heart and a change of heart comes from god doesn't it if we connect with the source of generosity it'll help us to be truly generous generous with our time generous being in touch with each other and i think this might be the thing for us to think about a bit at the moment brahman you talked about earlier how much of a challenge it is to us who love being a community and a kind of a, a family together that we don't get to see each other physically or meet together well i think what that really means at least for now is that we need to make a greater effort to be in touch personally in some way or other whether it's on the phone a whatsapp call a video call or not or an audio call uh, using messenger using zoom using i mean actually we have in fact it take far too long to list all the different platforms we could use but perhaps we need to make it would be good to make a generous offer to one another to be in better touch even if it's a, not a, even if it's a text or a, a whatsapp but at, la at least connecting during the week during the days of the week so that we're seeing each other a bit more frequently i think that's for me at least one of the ways that i i can consider being more generous is just being in better touch so how do we know we're meek how do we know that our faith is being expressed in meekness one of the ways is in being generous towards other people and because of this generosity a lot i think this is the reason why in chapter 13 the last part of it we see uh, god then speak to abram he speaks to him i don't think it's so much a reward like oh you behaved yourself there therefore i'll talk to you i don't think it's that exactly but i do think it's symbolic that after god after abraham has dealt with the situation with lot with integrity and meekness then god speaks to him and he tells him go through the land have a look north south east west and uh, and all that land you see i'll give to you and your offspring and this is now forever that's an uh, an upgrade on the previous promise I'll make your offspring like dust, which just, you know, can't be counted. Walk through the length and the breadth of the land. I am giving it to you. So we have this tremendous upgrading of the promises because this depth of trust of Abraham with God is growing. He's not taking control. He's allowing God to dictate uh, circumstances. And he builds another altar. It says there he builds that altar. Why? I, I don't know for sure, but I suspect it's Abraham's way of celebrating God's mercy 
to him after what happened in Egypt, God's still with him. And he's helping Abraham to be a changed man. So when we own our faults and experience God's generous mercy, then we're able to draw closer to the heart of God. Thirdly and finally, another aspect of meekness, I see the way that Abraham's faith works it out uh, in his life. Another aspect of this meekness is meekness helps us to act courageously for God. Generously first, but then courageously. Lot, as we've talked about, was near Sodom, chapter 13, verse 12, and now he's in Sodom, chapter 14, verse 12, and he's captured, taken off. And Abraham hears about it, and I don't know about you, but I think if <laughs> if Abraham was my nephew and he'd chosen this and moved into Sodom and, and it was an exceedingly wicked place, which was already known at the time that Lot moved there, and then Lot's captured, I think I'd be saying something like, good riddance. Or, uh, or, or at least, well, you've made your bed, you're now lying in it in captivity somewhere up north. That's your problem now, Lot. Sorry, but, you know, you chose. I mean, I gave you the choice. You didn't have to go there. I think this is a lot of how I would be feeling. But there's, in Abraham, there's some of his strength is a strength of compassion. It's a strong compassion. Uh, meekness, we can see here, is not passivity. It's not Abraham's fight really here, but his compassion moves him to get involved. And Christians are people who are moved to get involved to benefit other people, even if it's nothing really to do with us. Abraham is firm against those who wish to harm Lot. He wouldn't allow those he loved and felt responsible for to be taken advantage of. Reminds me of Jesus and reminds me of the Apostle Paul. When the Judaizers came into the church, Paul said, this will not do. This cannot happen. He writes letter after letter. He visits church after church to rescue them from false teaching and, and spiritual enslavement. That's what Jesus did also. Taking responsibility for us when it was our fault that we were far from God. One of the signs of a mature Christian, and I think especially a mature leader, I would say, is that they blend this compassionate side this compassionate merciful generous aspect of who they are with being courageous and sacrificial it's a blend of what i've referred uh, read earlier uh, read in other sources a blend of strength and warmth or like jesus in john 1 14 he came from the father full of grace and truth full of both in other words i think not so much a um not so much a balance i don't think balance is quite the right image but a blend of fullness a fullness of grace and a fullness of truth and i think we see this in abraham here he's got the compassion and the grace to let lot make his own decision and then he's also got the strength and uh, uh to to go into battle for the one that he cares for there's great strength in his leadership. Uh, we see several uh, evidences of that strength. Uh, firstly, he's prepared. He's got 318 men, 318 trained men. So he's been training them, or he's got someone to train them for him. And they're in his household, so which means that his, his household must be at least 1,000 people. That's what they reckon. If he's got 318 trained men, he's probably got at least 1,000 people in his household of some, in some way or other. He's designated that, they, these men, he's got them trained and ready, and he leads them into battle himself. 
he goes himself and divides them and, and works out presumably the tactics himself from what it looks. So he's trained, he's trained them, they're equipped, they're ready. And when the tragedy comes or the, the challenge comes, off they go. He takes the initiative and they get on with it. It's costly to Abraham, isn't it? I mean, imagine the scenario. It's costly to him in a sense that it's risky to his own life. He's involved in the battle himself. He risks his life. He risks the lives of his 318 um, men. He risks the, uh, the loss of time and money. I mean, the men on the battlefield are not in the harvest field at the moment or whatever else they would normally be doing. He's risking a great deal. He's making tremendous sacrifices for this undeserving nephew of his. There's emotional and spiritual uh, challenges going on as well. I mean, I, I would have found it difficult to care for Lot in the way that uh, that uh, that actually we see Abraham doing here. Uh, but Abraham is self-controlled and spiritual enough not to abandon his nephew. Impressive. And then just to finish off, let's look at the situation with the king of Sodom and Melchizedek and the contrast between the two. So the king of Sodom first. The king of Sodom says to Abraham in verse 21 of chapter 14, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Now, the way it's phrased there in the Hebrew, it's particularly strong. He's, it's a demand. It's an order. It's like the king walks out to Abraham and he says, give me the people. Give me. It's a very strong demand. And you can have, you can have the other stuff, but I give them to me. And I don't know about you, but I think if a king came out to me and, and did that kind of thing, said that kind of thing to me, I would, um, I would be a little intimidated. Um, but Abraham says, no, I've made a vow to God and I'm going to keep integrity with that vow. And I'm not going to take anything more than a bit of food and drink from my people and things and bits like that. But uh, I'm going to accept nothing from you. Why? Because I've made an oath to the Lord, God, most high creator of heaven and earth. So we see his strength again here and that he is able to stand up to something and someone that's intimidating and he has integrity. And uh, I, I think that must have been difficult. I would have been tempted to have a little chat with the king of Sodom. Um, uh, <laughs> I've, you've only got this back because I went into the battle to defeat an army that you couldn't defeat. I mean, come on. I mean, there's no sense in it with the king of Sodom, and, Sodom which is like, um, uh, wow, Abraham, you're awesome. Thank you so much. I can't believe how much you've done for me. What do you want? It's not like that at all. It's give me the people. I'd have struggled with that if I was Abraham. Anyway, he doesn't answer him rudely. He just says, this is firmly what I've uh, agreed with God. And, and that's the way it is. And he's very firm. And one of the things this shows me <clears throat> is that when we're in a secure place with God, as in kind of we're nothing, but God has chosen us. When we're in, in that secure place with him, we're able to lead a courageous life uh, or a life of courageous faith. How do we live this adventurous life of faith? How do we navigate these challenges, these tough situations as they come up? One of the ways we, we deal with it is by depending upon the strength of God to give us this strength to handle these challenges. We go to him even in the dry times. We find ourselves inspired to be generous and inspired to be courageous in our faith, caring about others who may not deserve that uh, that compassion or that help but we do it because God loves us has chosen us 
and inspires us by his compassion for us. So how do we know we're meek? How do we know we're living a life of adventurous faith in a meek manner? It's when we fight for the benefit of other people. And that benefit might be a simply spiritual one where we're trying to help people to know God. Or it could be when we find people in situations where they are suffering from injustice and hardship and they need our help. Either of those or any of those could be significant. And then Melchizedek, contrasting the king of Song, uh, Sodom and uh, king of Salem, Melchizedek, brings out bread and wine. We don't see here that the Melchizedek king of Salem has been uh, a bit blessed by Abraham's uh, uh, battles here or his rescue. It doesn't seem that he is particularly benefited himself, but he recognizes that God is with Abraham. And in recognizing that, he blesses him. It says he brings out bread and wine. Bread and water is for uh, anybody normal hosp hospitality. But in that culture, if you bring out bread and wine, it's symbolic of recognizing somebody as a king. He's recognizing Abraham as an equivalent to himself. Melchizedek, the first priest mentioned in the Bible, comes out and blesses him. Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. Praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. He sees it all as the action of God. You know, I think it's when we lead lives of adventurous faith meek in a meek way, in this kind of way, where we're going to God for our strength, where we're, we're inspired to be generous and courageous, it seems to me that when that people will then more easily recognize God is with us, that we're doing this for God and with his strength. Each godlike act that Abraham uh, lives out, brings a blessing from God. And it's two-way. There's a tithe here as well as the uh, the reception of the bread and the wine. Melchizedek came to bless him because he saw that God was with Abraham. And people see this. They see God is with us when they see us being generous and courageous in our faith, especially towards those who appear not to be deserving. So our, our I pray, our, our perhaps inspiration from this example might be that we develop our Christ-like meekness in our dependence upon God, that we grow in our Christ-like meekness in living lives of generosity, that we grow in our Christ-like meekness in living lives of courageous action on behalf of others. See, people whose faith inspires them to live this way change the world and they leave a spiritual legacy. And that is exactly what Abraham did, and we'll see more of that as we go through the rest of the series. Ultimately, the ultimate legacy that Abraham leaves is seen in Revelation. Let me read here from Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. Revelation 7. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These are those who are called. These are those who are with God forever. A, 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 such a large number that no one could count. The stars, the sand, the dust. All from Father Abraham. Who knows what God will do with you and me? 
or through you and me in this Watford church or wherever we are today. Who knows what God will do with you and I if we live an adventurous life of faith in meekness, trusting in God, holding on to God, dependent on God, living generously, living courageously, like Jesus did for us. 